So we're going to be going over this concept. This chapter, chapter of this book is called Evangelism Begins at Home. That might sound a little weird. You might think, well, what does that really mean? It's more than just trying to, if you are a family with kids, it's more than just trying to make sure the kids grow up in the Lord and are faithful. It's also this idea of, if I'm going to be a good evangelist in my everyday life, if I'm going to reach people, no matter what my situation is or circumstances, wherever I am, I'm going to have to live out my Christianity consistently. Sorry, no, not this week. But there'll be one for this week, next week. So, as I was saying, if we're going to be good evangelists, we have to live out consistently. So that means we can't be, you know, just one way at church and then go home and we're just totally different and we're not uh, trying to be uh, as we should. And that doesn't mean, obviously, that we have to be perfect. I don't think that uh, any of us here will ever get there, this side of heaven. But it does mean that we should strive for consistency. That's a big part of what this chapter is about. The author starts off the chapter with something pretty interesting. He talks about this story of going to the zoo with his daughter. And they're at the zoo and they're going through and they're looking at all the different animals. And they're looking at some bears in the zoo. And his daughter asks this man if he could fight the bear and win. And they're at the zoo and, you know, the bear's behind layers of glass. And the guy's like, yeah, I think I can fight him and win. And his daughter lights up, and she's like, wow, it's amazing. And he says, of course, if it wasn't for that glass, his answer would be a lot different. Right? If they were there, like on a hiking trail in the nature in the woods, and the bear was right there, and she said, Daddy, can you fight the bear? He would have said, no way. Let's turn around and go home. And his whole point is, sometimes by keeping things at a safe distance, we can kind of have a chip on our shoulder uh, that's artificial. You know, when the bear's not in the enclosure things become a lot different. And this whole point is sometimes we build these barriers in our life so that we can feel better about ourselves. So sometimes we build these barriers around God and we say, God is only in the church building. You know, he's not something that should be on my mind or in my life, wherever I am, not on Sunday and Wednesday. And we can feel better about ourselves. Not all of us, I think probably very few of us do this, but if we're not careful, we can start to compartmentalize things. And sometimes people see God as somehow safer when he's kind of confined in one little place or he's confined in only one part of our life. And when we view God like this, right? Oh, God's really only in the church building. God's only there when I pray, etc. When we view God like this, um, we have all the courage in the world. Maybe when we're at church, you know, Bob or... Uh, if Bob or I or David or somebody preaches a sermon on evangelism and while we're here we might be really fired up about it and then we leave and we go back to work or we go back to school or we go back to just the daily grind and somehow that fire has kind of gone out um, but those truths we came to those realizations that we've come to about evangelism, about God, etc. in church don't become any less real when we go home uh, so that's something just we need to uh, remember and keep in mind. Um, so this idea of going to a place and God being there and then not really thinking about God at home is seen in an interesting way in a story 
or really the account, I should say, of the woman at the well. If you were to turn your Bibles to John 4 and look at what we have there recorded for us about Jesus' interaction with this Samaritan woman. And it's an account we're probably all very familiar with. Jesus is at the well, and he was with his disciples. They went to go get something to eat. Jesus stayed behind and started conversing with this woman at the well. So if you would look there, John 4, beginning in verse, well, we'll start in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So she's had five husbands. I don't know if she's divorced or I doubt she was, there was like a polygamy situation. Uh, most likely she had some unscriptural divorces. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the Jews and Samaritans, they had this disagreement over where this place we're going to go and meet God is. The Jews rightly, rightly thought that was Jerusalem. They built the temple there. They go there for their worship and for their sacrifices, etc. But the Samaritans thought differently. They thought, uh, unless I'm wrong, Mount Gerizim was where you go to meet God. Somebody can check me on that. But this Mount Gerizim, so they thought they would go there, and that's where they would worship God. And part of that is their religious belief. They didn't have the further revelation past the Pentateuch, I think. Some people say that's what they held to. So they had this debate over where are we going to go uh, to meet God? Where are we going to go to worship God? And this author brings out a good point. He says she preferred to argue over the place of God's presence than to have God present in her life. And when you look at that conversation, it's pretty interesting how she changes the subject very quickly. Jesus says, go call your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, well, you've had five husbands. The one you're with now isn't your husband. And she says, hey, where should we worship? You know, it's pretty interesting. And it's almost like she goes straight to that question, where do we meet God? But she really wasn't, at least she hadn't been in the past, concerned about having God with her in her life, but there she was speaking, conversing with God in the flesh. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. And of course, Jesus' answer is true worship doesn't depend on the place, right? It can be done anywhere. It depends on how it's done, by whom, the right way, for the right reasons. So that's his answer. There's a time coming. It's not going to be Jerusalem. It's not going to be the mountain where your people go. You can do it anywhere as long as you do it in spirit and in truth. Because that's what God seeks and that's what God wants. And I think it's a good reminder that we can be tempted to think that God is limited to a certain physical place. Again, with this idea that almost like God only lives in the church building, as if the church is some kind of temple. I'm not saying anybody here believes that, but we need to be careful that we don't get that kind of attitude. 
Now, should we be reverent in church when we worship God? Absolutely, 100%. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that that devotion to God should go with us when we leave these four walls, and hopefully it does. Anybody here ever been to New Orleans? Good number. Good number, you guys. Wow. I want to go eventually, one day. Um, we'll see if that happens. I don't know if we'll fly or drive. Anyway. This guy talks about New Orleans in the book, and those of you guys who've been there, unlike me, I Googled it a little bit, but maybe you know this. He gives the example of Jackson Square in New Orleans, maybe you've been there. But he talks about how Jackson Square is home to St. Louis Cathedral, and it's a minor basilica, uh, but it's supposedly built to the glory of God by the Catholic Church, and it's supposed to be really nice. Have you been there, Bob? Is it beautiful? Yes. So it's a beautiful, ornate place, and they're probably very religious while they're within that building. You know, it's something that they try to maintain and try to be serious about. But then just blocks away, you've got Bourbon Street and the French Quarter and some of the stuff that goes on there, which we all know doesn't have a very good reputation. And he cites this as kind of a prime example of a place that claims to hold God's glory in its four walls, but the surrounding area refuses to let God in. And of course, I know God's glory isn't there in that basilica. But if we're not careful, we can kind of turn the church into that. The church is the place where we glorify God and are there for the glory of God. But not everything in our life. But 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, uh, ought to be done to the glory of God. So we ought to have that mindset. Sometimes we believe that God dwells more in the church building than in other places. You ever heard... Um, Maybe like in a joking situation, I know this is a joke, but somebody will say, now you didn't just lie in the church building, did you? Or they'll say, did you lie in the church building? You know, as if lying at home is any better, right? No matter where you lie, a lie is a lie, it's a sin. But in the church building especially, like, wait a second, you know, you're going to tell the truth anyway, tell it here. And I don't think that's necessarily bad, but that mindset of, wait a second, I shouldn't be lying anywhere. You know, I, sh I should be like this 24-7. And now there's going to be moments when we're not as serious, obviously, when we're feeling different emotions. Um, we need to be careful that we don't just isolate God or compartmentalize God to just one part of our life. You know, Forrest, if you think about, um, well, one thing, like Joab and, and when Joab murdered Abner, mm -hmm. and David didn't do anything, but then when David died, he told Solomon, you need to address that. Mm -hmm. And when Solomon became king, Abner took and fled, or Joab took and fled, and he went to the uh, altar and grabbed a hold of the horns for like sanctuary. You know, but you couldn't kill me while I'm holding on to the altar. And you think, you know, like in in history, where people would go into a, a, a Roman Catholic cathedral and they would claim sanctuary. In other words, then the political government couldn't couldn't bother them because they were in the house of God. Then you take it to our anti-brothers today who say that you know we can't eat in the building or we can't do certain things in the building and they've almost in a sense um, say, you know, made this a holy place. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, here's these different aspects where people have put God in this building. You know, it's like when Israel carried the tabernacle. Yeah. You know, God's with us because we're carrying this box. Right. You know? Right. And so, I mean, it's not far from that. You know, what he's saying, we do that, and sometimes we don't even realize we do it. Yeah. I think really, 
It becomes dangerous in the context of evangelism because when we're in those everyday situations where we could say something for God or say something to get people to think about Jesus, we're not thinking about God because we're not in that place. You know, and we got to realize that um, that's not the way it should be. I think there's an example in 1 Samuel, too, where they carry the ark with them without preparing the way God told them to prepare, and they lose the battle. And they thought, just because we have the ark with us, I think it's 1 Samuel 5, just because we have the ark with us, we're going to win. But that wasn't the case. You actually had to do what God had asked you to do. Uh, so that, that's a good point. I'm going to read from him on page 17 here. I'm not, I know I don't think any of us have these books, uh, but he says uh, something pretty interesting. He says, do we build God a house in lieu of having him stay at ours? After all, if God is allowed out of the nice cage we've built for him, we might have to really deal with him. And he says, for some people, God has become like the lion or the bear in the zoo. We feel safe and good looking at him because we can choose to turn away whenever we want. We have to pay attention to him only when it's convenient. And I think one of, the, one of the things that helps us become better evangelists is getting out of that mindset and allowing being a follower of Christ to permeate really everything we do and not just certain times and in certain locations. Um, okay, let's see here. Yeah, so there might be reasons why we might just want to keep God at church. You know, in our everyday lives, there's mess, there's dysfunction, there's difficulty. You know, we loosen up, we let our guards down. Um, and it's much easier to interact with God when it's, you know, once or twice a week, when we're ready for it, when we're set up for it. But it's in our everyday lives, our homes, our workplaces, etc., uh, where God, where we must be focused on God if we're going to be natural evangelists. Obviously, while we're here, it's hard to evangelize to other people, obviously, Hopefully, if there's somebody who's ever visiting who's not a Christian, they're getting something from it, and they're being taught, and they're learning. But this is about going out and every day having the strength and the courage uh, to live for God. All right. So let's read some verses here, kind of getting out of this mindset that God's only in a specific place at a specific time. Look at Acts chapter 17, if you would, in your Bibles. Acts 17, and we'll look at verses 22 and following. And this is Paul uh, in Athens speaking to the philosophers there on Mars Hill. And he has something to say about God that they kind of misunderstood. And hopefully we don't have this misconception. Acts 17, beginning of verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or superstitious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So they were so superstitious or religious, they had all these idols set up, and just in case they miss one, they'll say, okay, this is the idol to the God we miss, to the God we overlook, to the God we don't know. And he says, this is the God I'm going to preach to you. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. You think about that, he's in Athens. I mean, they still replicate, there's one in Nashville uh, that Lori and I saw. They still replicate that temple to Athena that was in Athens. I mean, it's one of the, the Parthenon, one of the wonders of the world, maybe, maybe not. Is it? The temple in Ephesus was. I may have been confused. Yeah, Diana. 
But so they believed that, you know, these gods, the god they named their city after, actually dwelt in a place made by a person. He says, that's not how it works. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So he's revealing this, these facts about the character and the nature of God. He doesn't live in temples made by man's hands. He is, uh, philosophers call this the transcendence and the imminence of God. He's transcendent in that, you know, he's not like a physical object right here. He's not uh, going to come here and push me over. He transcends his creation, but at the same time, he's imminent. That is, he's close by. He can hear you when you reach out to him. He sees what you're doing. He's aware of what's going on. He's allowed to act in his creation. So you see that both of these things are playing out in the reality of God. And we just need to remember uh, there, as it says, he's not actually far from any one of us. We're going to reach out and feel for him and find him and, of course, follow him and obey him. That's a good reminder wherever we are. You know, if we're in a situation and we have the opportunity to talk to somebody, to strike up a new friendship with the goal of sharing the gospel with that person, with the goal of studying the Bible with that person, to remember that you're not alone in that endeavor, right? God uh, is there in a way. He's not far from you. He's, uh, you know, Jesus, when he gave the Great Commission, go and preach to all the nations, and he says, lo, I'm with you always. And so God's our co-worker in that. And of course, he can communicate to them through his word as long as we're able to get them there to that opportunity to study it. In fact, um, the Bible even talks about, in the New Testament especially, God dwelling in us. I know there's a lot of debate over this, how exactly that happens, and there's a lot of good brethren on both sides. I do lean toward the fact that the Holy Spirit does, not miraculously, but literally, indwell the Christian. Um, but this isn't a debate about that. It's just this idea of us not being far from God wherever we are. But look at some of these verses with me, if you would. Uh, somebody get 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. If you would turn there. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. And then somebody else get verse, uh, sorry, chapter, sorry, Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Romans 8, 9 through 11. And then if somebody will get Ephesians... 3, 14 through 19. I'll get that last one. All right, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Who has that? Thank you. So here, Paul is referencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as motivation for holy living. And he's saying, look, you, and that's a singular you. He's talking to people as individuals. You know, your temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, who's been given by God, 
Um, so we have to glorify God in our bodies, right? So we can't use our bodies to do things, just whatever we want to do. We ought to be living for God. Uh, somebody else read for us Romans 8, 9 through 11. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If it is so that the spirit of God dwells in you. But if any man doesn't have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised up Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Thank you. So again and again in that passage, you have this idea of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in his people. And if you go on, Paul talks about that spirit being a um, really, how am I going to explain this? Almost like, proof almost for the idea that we've been adopted. It's not the spirit of slavery, going back to fear, but the spirit that cries out, Abba, Father, to God the Father. And the spirit even helps us in our weaknesses, Paul says, and even helps us in those prayers uh, when we don't know what to pray for, groanings too deep uh, to even express. And then there's this idea in Ephesians, I said three, it's actually Ephesians five. If you look, beginning at verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And here Paul juxtaposes or contrasts getting drunk with being filled with uh, God's Spirit. So you see the difference there. But the idea is that that ought to motivate me uh, to not only live a certain way as a Christian, but that, that reality, uh, even though we can debate exactly how that happens, that reality ought to be encouraging to us in evangelism and a reminder that in our homes, in our places of work, wherever it may be, uh, God's Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. And that doesn't mean he overrides our system and makes us live perfectly, but it ought to be a reminder for us that we should be living on mission, as some people call it. You know, when you go on a mission trip, those of you who have gone, it seems like you're trying to reach everybody you come in contact with. I remember going with Ted, maybe this has happened with Bob as well, but with Ted, when I went, and I guess a lot of times before, it's a, kind of an interesting setup, but I guess the guy who drives you around the whole trip isn't always a Christian, which is pretty interesting. He's like a hired driver. Dave, when you went, was the guy a Christian? Yeah, not once. And oftentimes, Ted will tell me, by the end of the trip, that driver who's not a Christian ends up becoming a Christian. They end up baptizing him, and he comes to the Lord, and then he uh, lives on But uh, as a Christian. But those of us who maybe have been on mission trips, or even when we did the door knocking here, when you're in that mindset, it's like, everybody I talk to, I'm going to hand something to. Everybody I talk to, I'm going to invite them to something. Everybody I talk to, like, you're just in that mindset. And then you come back from the mission trip and you relax and you go to the supermarket and you see the same people you see all the time that you've never talked to about Jesus and you don't talk to them about Jesus and you just go on with your day. And you start thinking, you know, what's the difference there? You know, are the people at Publix any less deserving of our conversation about Jesus than the people in some foreign country at the, the market there? Uh, or you can plug in whatever the people are. So this idea of living on mission is, and I know you think, well, that's kind of tiring. 
but the idea of always thinking about the soul of the person you're with. And that doesn't mean you're always got to slide them a track. It doesn't mean you always have to tell them the five steps to the plan of salvation. But it means you're working with them, hopefully to start a friendship, to work towards that point where they're comfortable having that conversation with you. And you can have a Bible study with them. You can share the gospel with them, uh, etc. quote from the book here says, If God is allowed to live in us and not just in the church building, our faith will be much more authentic to those around us. And I think if people see, you know, that idea of uh, practice what you preach, that's been said a lot. Jesus mentioned it in Matthew 23, 3, when he's talking to the people about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And he says, do what they say, but don't do as they do, because they preach, but they don't practice. In other words, you know, they're all about it. They could tell you where, they could tell you the book, chapter, verse for everything you need to know. You know, I think it's interesting when Herod, when Jesus, uh, when the wise men came to Jesus and told them that, hey, the Messiah is being born, the Savior is being born, Jesus, I mean, sorry, Herod grabbed some of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees to go through the scriptures and tell him, where is this going to happen? So they knew their Bible, they weren't living it out. And um, if that's how we are, people aren't going to be attracted to Christianity, they're probably not going to want to listen to us, we want to share something with them about the gospel. Uh, so this idea of striving for consistency. When we see God as only being in one place, we run the risk of being hypocritical. We run the risk of being one person at church and a totally different person at work or at home or wherever we may be. We run the risk of hampering our evangelism because people need to see our authenticity. They need to see our consistency and at least our effort towards it. You know, again, I'm not saying we have to be perfect. Otherwise, people aren't going to listen to us. But people should be able to see that we're a Christian, not just on Sunday and Wednesday, but throughout the week. Another quote from the book that I thought was really good, he says, For you to be a natural evangelist, you need to align your hidden behaviors with your public message. In other words, you know, what you do in private, what you do around your friends and your family, ought to align with what you publicly say you believe in. That confession you made right before your baptism, when you said, you know, I believe in Jesus Christ uh, as the Son of God. You know, that confession of Jesus as Lord, that language of Lord is saying, I'm a servant of Jesus. You know, Christianity isn't just a job you clock in and you clock out of. It's something that's 24-7, like a slave and a master. That's the language the New Testament uses. And of course, Jesus uh, is our master, and we ought to be living for him. And I think another example in the New Testament, if you look at 1 Peter 3, 1 through 2, if somebody could read that for us when you get there, and he's talking about wives, specifically women who are married to non-Christians. But I think it really does apply uh, to a lot of people in a lot of different situations. First uh, Peter 3, verses 1 through 2. If somebody could get that for us. Yes, sir. Thank you. So there's this idea of women who were married to men who were not Christians. And um, he's launching into this conversation about wives being submissive to husbands, husbands loving their wives, living with their wives in a gentle and understanding way. And he says that wives, part of the reason for this subjection or this respect, um, this respectful and pure conduct is to win their husbands. 
you think about what he's saying there, it's talking about converting those husbands, winning those husbands for Christ. And he says that can be done by being respectful, being pure, being gentle, living Christianity in your own private life at home. And that's what part of what Paul is admonishing these women to do. And that doesn't mean, you know, if you're a woman married to a non-Christian, if he's not a Christian yet, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's your fault. You know, there's some men who, even with a great wife who lives how she should and is striving for Jesus, are never going to come around uh, to submitting to the gospel. That's just the way it is. But it's a good reminder that our conduct really does say a lot. And how we live in our private lives and how we live away from the church building um, is necessary for us winning people for the gospel. Any questions or comments so far? Let me rephrase that. What questions or comments do you have? Oh man, I gotta get going, okay. I'm gonna read kind of an extended, he has an extended quote in this book from a, um, a certain author named Fred Craddock, is his name? And he's a preacher in the Christian church, the Disciples of Christ, who, um, you know, unfortunately uh, are denomination, but they share some beliefs that are biblical. But he has this good example in a book that this guy wrote that he quotes. And it's a story about his father. So just listen to this. Uh, it's pretty interesting. My mother took us to church and Sunday school. My father never went. He complained about Sunday dinner being late when she came home. Sometimes the preacher would call, and my father would say, I know what the church wants. Church doesn't care about me. Church wants another name, another pledge. Just another name and another pledge, right? Isn't that the name of it? Another name and another pledge. That's what he always said. Sometimes we'd have a gospel meeting. The preacher would bring the evangelists and say to the evangelists, there's one now. Make sure you get them. Make sure you get them to pay attention. My father would just say the same thing. The church doesn't care about me. The church just wants another member in the pews. They just want more money. I guess I heard it a thousand times. One time, he didn't say it. He was in the veterans hospital, and he was down to 73 pounds. They'd taken out his throat and said it's too late. They put in a metal tube and x-rays burned him to pieces. I flew in to see him. He couldn't speak, he couldn't eat. I looked around his room. Potted plants and cut flowers on all the windowsills, a stack of cards 20 inches deep beside his bed, and even that tray where they put food, if you can eat, on that was a flower. And all the flowers beside the bed, every card, every blossom, were from persons or groups from the church. He saw me read a card. He could not speak, so he took a Kleenex box and wrote on the side of the Kleenex box a line from Shakespeare. If he had not written this line, I would not tell you this story. He wrote, in this harsh world, draw your breath in pain to tell my story. I said, what is your story, Daddy? And he said, I was wrong. That, uh, thankfully, this isn't the first time I've read it, so I didn't cry. But that story really uh, hits you hard. And I think it's a good reminder that being a missionary is more about what we say. Being an evangelist is more about what we say. It's also about how we do. It's about how we live. And um, really firmly believing that God can use our lives to reach other people. But that can only happen if we live for God uh, consistently. 
and if we seek Jesus day in and day out. If Jesus is the Lord of our lives, he will be in us and our homes, and our faith will be real. Look at John 14, verses 23 through 24. And if somebody gets there before me, you can read it. If not, I'll take care of it. John 14, 23-24. And it says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And I love that first verse there where it says, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him and will come and will make our home with him. We will dwell with him. And that idea of day in, day out, having that relationship and having that um, just special connection with God and with his son, Jesus. Okay. Any questions or comments now? All right, so we're going to do this uh, with a little bit of time we have left. We're going to do this action evangelism at the end of each chapter. You know, something for us to do, a little activity. If you have a pen and paper, I would encourage you to write these questions down. Again, I'm going to give you a sheet with them on it next week. But if you have a pen and paper, I encourage you to write these down. And we will discuss them. I want you to think about them. Homework again. I know, I'm sorry. I want you to try to think about them between now and next Wednesday. And try to get an answer. You don't have to write anything down, but as long as you have some thoughts prepared... That'll be enough for me. The first question is, why is it tempting to think God only occupies one space? Why is it tempting to think God only occupies one space? I'll write it again. I'll read it again. Sorry. Whoa. Why is it tempting to think God only occupies one space. Number two. Number two. How can we live like God is everywhere we are? How can we live like God is everywhere we are? How can we live like God is everywhere we are? In other words, what does that look like? What are some practical examples of if you think God is everywhere you are, how does that change your behavior? What does that look like? Okay. Third question. How does this view that God is everywhere we are, how does this view of God lead to better evangelism? How does this view of God lead to better evangelism? How does this view of God lead to better evangelism? And the fourth question is just for you to answer for yourself. Something to think about. Is your behavior away from church consistent? Is your behavior away from church consistent? All right. Anybody need anything? Do I need to repeat any of those? All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Appreciate your attention. We will uh, end our meeting there since the bell has rung thrice. But thank you for being here.